0: But uh, we are moving on now to the reading and proclaiming of God's Word, and we, uh, this week and next week, we are finishing up uh, the letter of 1 Peter. And this whole letter has been speaking to people who were powerless, uh, who were suffering or soon to be suffering, oftentimes from society or from the state. But now, very briefly, Peter is going to address people who have power. And specifically, he's talking to the leaders of the church, the elders. But the reality is, we all have some power in some setting. So the question is, what is your relationship with power? What is your attitude toward power? Think about that as I read from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed... For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. God, we ask that you would be with us now uh, as we look at your word. We ask that you would help us by your spirit to see Jesus here and and what he has done for us on the cross and what he is doing in and through us uh, today as your gathered people. Uh, Help us to hear and believe the good news you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As many of you know, I taught uh, high school U.S. history for several years. Uh, history is one of my favorite hobbies. I love, still love reading history. It's like eating candy for me. And uh, right now I'm going through some early American history, the uh, administrations of Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. And one of the big things that was happening then uh, w- were the Napoleonic Wars. Europe was engulfed in a war. In fact, there's this new film, Joaquin Phoenix is playing Napoleon, so maybe that's in your conscious somehow, but the Napoleonic Wars are very important, and the two main combatants, Great Britain and France, they were not very nice to America, to the United States. America was a neutral. What do we want to do? We want to make money off of the war, so we want to trade with everybody, but the French and the British didn't want us trading with anyone else but with them, and I hate to say it, but the British were the worst, Uh, and, and one of the worst things they did to American shipping and merchants was called impressment. Right, you guys should be remembering this from your U.S. history classes, right? impressment. everyone should boo and hiss when they hear that, right? They would stop American vessels, they would search for British citizens or people who might sound like they had been British citizens, and they would take them and press them into service in the Royal Navy. Uh, In fact, they even boarded a a U.S. naval vessel, uh, searched it, and destroyed it, taking off several sailors, pressing them into the Navy. Now... Any other nation at any other time in history would have considered this an act of war and just simply in order to uh, maintain honor would have gone to war with Great Britain. But neither political party at the time wanted to do that. In fact, Jefferson and his political party, the Republicans, were terrified of going to war and this was their primary fear. What if we win? What if we win? The United States had already beaten Great Britain once, but if they won another war against Great Britain, that would mean there would be a large army, there would be a large navy, there would be a large tax structure, there would be a large government to collect those taxes. And that would be the end of American liberty. That would be the end of the American experiment. So no, we cannot go to war because we cannot have a powerful government. The American founders feared power. It had to be checked, it had to be divided, it had to be weakened. And what's so interesting, that power was the problem there, what's so interesting and ironic is that if you've been to college, a liberal arts college in the last 20 or 30 years, you've heard the same thing. But this time it's not the American patriots, it's French postmodern philosophers saying power is the problem. Everything is about power. Any truth statement is supposedly an attempt to assert power and control. Everything we do as individuals or people groups is to try to assert and maintain power over others. Whether you are a conservative founder of the Republic or you are a progressive postmodern radical, power is a problem. We are suspicious of it. We distrust people in power because power corrupts. And we all seem to fall into the same trap when we have power ourselves. So like I said, Peter finally for once is addressing people with power, the elders of churches. But what we see here is that in Jesus, power can be used in the right way for the right reasons. Power can be redeemed. So we're going to look at this under two main points, which is don't distort it, but dress for it power. Don't distort it, dress for it. But as we're talking about the distortions of power, we see three contrasts that Peter gives here in this passage. Not like this, but like that, Peter is saying. So we're going to look at these distortions of power under three sentences. So the first one is this. It's actually a question. How can I get out of this? Verse two, Peter writes, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, right? Not under compulsion, don't be forced to, Peter says. So when when you are uh, in a position of power, you're called to use power, your first and only thought shouldn't be, how can I get out of this? Because for elders, and here this includes pastors, that might be their primary feeling how can I get out of this? Leading a congregation, shepherding the flock is a tough job. It's scary and intimidating to exercise oversight over a congregation. I'm speaking from experience, right? For pastors and elders, it can feel like a thankless calling. You hear more complaints than compliments. You sometimes have to watch people you love and have responsibility towards walk away from the church, reject God, reject you. Your hardest work, often your best work, is usually unseen, and so are your tears. Do it willingly, Peter says, not under compulsion, not with a resentful bad attitude. And it's not just the church. We resist having power in all kinds of scenarios and contexts. Uh, Sometimes we're given a chance to make a difference in a school or an organization, a neighborhood, a a job, a church. Someone recognizes our gifts and abilities, right? They see that we can be very helpful in a particular situation. We are approached with an opportunity, right? Whether it's a a ministry at church or coaching a team or leading a committee, starting a new project at work. And often our first and primary thought is, how can I get out of this? One of the only times I really like being short is at a meeting of parents for kids on a sports team. They're like, well, we need some parent coaches. Well, I'm so sorry, I'm sitting in the back and you can't see me, right? How sad for me. As power hungry and power crazy as our age is, it might stand out for how power is frequently rejected because it's seen as too costly. Right now, We, We have a good idea of who the two presidential candidates will be next November. And here in our congregation, we have people who regularly vote for one political party or the other. But I bet I could get the majority to agree with one thing. Shouldn't we have better choices? Right? I think most of us would agree with that. Can you imagine the number of qualified people who have been approached to run for president the last 20 or 30 years? And their primary thought was, how can I get out of this? Just this morning, I read 36 members of Congress are refusing to run for office next year. How many things are falling apart because we are constantly asking, how can I get out of this? But the Bible from cover to cover, literally Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, both pages say humans were meant and designed to exercise power and to wield authority for the good of creation and for God's glory. Ultimate reality is packed with power relationships from the Trinity on down. Power itself isn't the problem. The problem with power is sin. It's sin that leads to the abuse of power. It's sin that leads us to reject using legitimate power. We deny God's image and our own design when we run from exercising legitimate power. We all need to be thoughtful and wise about what we say yes to. But I think we can be so quick to say no to things because we don't want the stress, right? We don't want the work. We don't want the commitment. We don't, we don't want the lack of freedom. We don't want the chance of failure that comes from accepting a position of power. We'd rather serve ourselves. And, of course, this was one of the ways that Jesus was tempted by Satan. Remember, Satan showed Jesus all the kingdoms and and all the nations on earth and said, these all can be yours if you would just bow down and worship me. You don't have to go to the cross, Jesus. Wielding power well is costly. It hurts. And for Jesus to wield power perfectly, defeating death for us, it was going to hurt infinitely being tortured to death and forsaken by his Father on the cross. It was so terrible, in fact, that Jesus asked, is there another way? And there wasn't. So he went willingly as God would have him. Jesus isn't resentful or bitter about saving you. He willingly did it. He redeemed the world by his right exercise of power through suffering. And you can join him in that work of redemption when you exercise power willingly and faithfully. Oftentimes, though, it's going to cost something. It might feel like too much. And so oftentimes, the only times we accept power is when we can tell it's going to be to our benefit. And that's the second distortion. The next question we ask is, What can I get out of this? This is the end of verse 2. Peter says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Apparently, as early as the first century, church leaders could use their position of power for shameful gain. And of course, in our day, we see examples of this for church leaders. But this isn't only a church issue. This is a human issue. We are always asking, what can power do for me? What can I get out of it? And it's usually more resources, more security, more social standing, more leniency. Power means relevance, status, nicer things and experiences. Usually for us to accept the position of power, the personal benefits have to outweigh the costs. What can I get out of this is the primary question. And the perks that come with power can be so compelling that people forget why they pursued that position in the first place. Most people enter politics for good reasons, right? They, they want to fix something. They have values they want to defend. They have a, a vision, right, to help their community. But by the end of their career, what are they usually most focused on? Maintaining power. This happens to institutions, companies, even churches. Whatever the mission started out as, it will sooner or later become, expand our influence and build power, whether that's in money, market share, notoriety, whatever. Power is intoxicating. And so the question, what can I get out of this, that acts like gasoline on the fire of sin and our selfish nature. So wielding power well means asking this opposite question. What can others, what can the world get out of my power. Power is to be exercised for the sake of others. And of course, the example here is Jesus, right? Peter says, look, I saw him suffer. I am a witness to his sufferings. He is Lord and King, and I saw him suffer. That was Jesus' experience here as shepherd on earth, right? He is known as the man of sorrows. He suffered he used his power as the Son of God to defeat human religiosity, sin, death, evil, through suffering. But there is an interesting twist to this. That doesn't mean that there wasn't anything in it for him. Jesus served and exercised power selflessly for good reason. Hebrews 12 States it, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There is joy set before Jesus. If he goes through suffering, if he goes to the cross, there would be joy afterwards. What was that joy? Saving us. You are his joy, you are Jesus' reward. A redeemed, beautiful, glorious world. Restored humanity from every tongue, tribe, and nation. That's his joy and reward. That's what comes after his righteous suffering and crucifixion. For all of us, there is reward for a faithful exercise of power. That's what Peter says here in verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory, which maybe we don't really know or care what an unfading crown of glory is. Jesus told a different parable about it. He talked about a rich man who was going away on a journey, and he gave wealth, resources to several servants. Hey, do some business with this while I'm gone. Make something of this. And when he returned to the servants who had actually done something with his deposit, he said this, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. There are rewards for exercising power well and faithfully, for using the resources God gives you. And your reward, ultimately, is everlasting joy with Jesus. That's what you get. So the pattern of using power well is death and resurrection. You can exercise power best when resurrection is in view, when entering into the joy of Jesus is your goal, when, when you are eager for that. Because exercising power well will always mean some kind of death. Death. If you're not dying somehow when you're exercising power, you are distorting it, right? Because power is not about serving yourself. So power should be wielded in such a way that it only makes sense in light of resurrection. So you know that you're actually doing it pretty well when someone comes to you and says, I'm glad I don't have your job. Right, because it means that you are not clearly doing it for yourself and for your own comfort, you are doing it for others. And I've said before, that's one of the greatest compliments you can give me or any of our elders when you say, I'm glad I don't have your job. It gives me hope that I might be doing it okay. Third distortion, the final distortion you can make with power is this statement, you can't get out of this. Right? For some, the pleasure of power comes from exercising dominance over others, right? treating them as inferior, feeling superior, you're under my thumb, you have to do what I say. Verse 3, Peter says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. We can treat people as lowly servants, not as human beings bearing the image of God. Aristotle said that slaves were merely living tools, and sometimes, That's how we treat people under our authority. You exist in your role to serve me, to achieve my goals. And if you do not do what I say, and if you do not perform how I want, I will make things very unpleasant for you. When we make our goals and comfort more important than the people under our charge, we are distorting power. Donald Noss uh, is a a very successful American executive. About 10 years ago, he was the CEO of Clorox, and he was giving an interview talking about uh, the importance of of people. And uh, he said he learned that by being in the Marines. Uh, He had just gotten out of school and officer training. He was going to his first posted assignment, his first command, and and he was being flown out to his men uh, who for three days had been in training. They were only eating sea rations, but finally they were getting a hot meal. Well, he had been up since 5 in the morning, and he was pretty hungry. So he said, I started walking over to get in front of the line. And this gunnery sergeant grabbed me by my shoulder and turned me around, and he said, Lieutenant, in the field, the men always eat first. You can have some if there's any left over. He said, okay, I get it. And that was the approach. It's all about your people. It's not about you. If you're going to lead these people, you better demonstrate that you care more about them than you care about yourself. And that's what Peter is saying. You have to be an example. Elders, be an example. Example of what? Example of Jesus. Was Jesus domineering? He could have demanded and crushed. Instead, he served and was patient and wept. That's what he said of himself in Matthew 11. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, me. for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For the Christians here, how does Jesus lead you? Is he patient with you and meek, or are you constantly sensing his anger or disdain? Does he treat you like a living tool or as his great treasure and joy? Do you know how gracious he is toward you? How much room he gives you to fail and how he never rejects you when you return to him? I think of how often I demand obedience from my children simply because they owe it to me out of respect. And it pains me to say this, that they might not see a lot of Jesus in the way that I use power at home. Of course, within human relationships and organizations, there have to be clear boundaries and accountability. That's the responsibility of those in power. But generally speaking, you can use power to force obedience, or you can use power to win hearts. Jesus could force our obedience. Instead, he wins our hearts. So to to sum up these distortions of power, right, we often avoid it unless we can get something substantial out of it for ourselves that leads to self-aggrandizing and dehumanizing. And the solution that we see is this counterpoint, Jesus. Peter says you don't have to operate like the world does. You can operate like Jesus does with power. How? Final point, dress for it. As you entrust yourself to Jesus and try to follow him, he changes you and he works through you. Verse 5, Peter writes, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Clothe yourselves with humility. In the ancient world, clothing mattered more than it does now, right? Every mark of status had a different kind of outfit. Every profession had a different outfit. In fact, there were laws regulating what you could wear. So in the New Testament, the apostles are constantly saying, put on Christ, clothe yourself in Jesus, which would mean be identified with Jesus, both privately and publicly, entrust yourself to him, be about his work, participate in it, take on his mindset. To clothe yourself with humility is to put on Christ, to clothe yourself in Jesus. Jesus literally clothed himself in humility. On Monday, Thursday, the night before he was betrayed, he put on a slave uniform, and he went around and he washed the disciples' feet. Though he was Lord and Master, he had the power. Instead, he served. So when you put on Christ, you begin to grow in humility and meekness as he was. You begin to follow his patterns and grooves. You will be more and more willing to do the costly things in hope of resurrection. Treating people with dignity rather than as objects. Exercising true power rightly and faithfully will always increase your humility. Because whatever power you are invested with, it is for the sake of others and not yours. Right? The world says, by the world's judgment system, it says that the people under you are less important than you. They are worth less than you because power is all about value. The more power you have, the more value you have. But Jesus says the people under your authority are worthy of everything because you are worth everything to him. It's a completely different value system. So maybe you're listening to this and it just sounds like more work, more to perform. I can't do this, but here's the thing. God does this for you and in you. Peter closes by saying, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Uh, And that's really good news. If you approach power in these distorted ways, then God opposes you. And we need that. We need someone who opposes the super powerful people who distort power. They need to face justice somehow. God promises they will. But he gives grace to those who want to use power well. To those who come to him recognizing they need help. And we all do, elders and pastors and managers and executives and bosses and parents, big brothers and sisters, teachers, anyone with any kind of power or authority. We need God's grace to not to distort that power, and he gives it. It's Jesus. When Peter says God gives grace to the humble, he means God gives Jesus to those asking for him. Wielding power the right way is an emptying of self in the sure hope that God will fill you back up with his son. Peter, the apostle here, he was invested with power. Remember, Jesus called him the rock, right? He was going to be the head of the church on earth. And then even after Peter denied Jesus, after his resurrection, Jesus came and reinstated him as the chief shepherd, but it took Peter his whole life to learn how to exercise power well. The ancient church tradition says that uh, Peter was in Rome uh, during the persecution of Christians under Nero. And the story goes that it became clear Peter was going to be targeted because he was the leader of the church. And so all the Christians in Rome wanted him to get out. Get out of Rome, Peter. Right? We don't want you dead. So Peter went south down the Via Appia. And, and the first night he was out of the city, he was asleep, and he had a dream. And in the dream, Peter sees Jesus walking in the opposite direction. He's walking back into the city, and Peter asks Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus says, I'm going to Rome to be crucified. And then he disappears, and Peter wakes up. At that point, Peter knows what he has to do. He has to turn back and go back into Rome, and there he is crucified upside down. The people who are most ready to wield power well and faithfully are those who are most ready to die with Jesus. And you might say, I wish I were ready to die with Jesus, but I'm not. Join the club. God gives grace to the humble. God gives grace, God gives Jesus to those who are asking for him. You were made to exercise power. Put on Jesus to do it. Dress for it. The answer to the problem of power isn't radical skepticism or deconstruction. It's not even checks and balances and strong individual rights. The answer to the problem of power is Jesus. And so when wielding power becomes costly and uncomfortable, because it's for others and not for yourself when it grows humility in you and causes you more and more to hope in resurrection, that's when you know you are on the right path. That's Jesus' redeeming power in your life. Let's pray. God, we thank you for a shepherd like Jesus, and we ask that you would help us to be led by him and to see how kind and gentle he is with us and help us be that to others. In whatever context of power you've brought us, uh, help us uh, to be faithful in exercising it. Help us to serve others and not ourselves, and help us to look forward to resurrection. Let us all be willing to take the cost of power, because Jesus did for us. Fill us with him. We need him. We pray in his name. Amen.